And that's the biggest thing that a lot of people in senior leadership positions don't understand is every so often you have to go to your associates and say, I'm going to need a little bit more out of you this week. Depending on how you've treated them leading up to that, they may say, okay, boss. And then as soon as you walk out, they're like, whatever. Or they actually will do what they can to help because they know you appreciate their efforts. And welcome everybody to Equality Podcast Season 2, Episode 14. We are happy to have with us today Jason Long. Uh, Jason is an operations manager in the food supply chain industry. He's managing, I believe, two warehouses right now and has a long history in this field. We're excited because we like to have different guests on that have different experience. And I know personally that the warehousing industry can be a real challenge. So, Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Sorry, I'm trying well, to get light. <laughs> no problem. So, we're excited to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. And we wanted to discuss creating a winning work environment today. And I think that it, a couple of things, right? One is the warehouse job, right, is one of the more challenging environments to create a winning culture. And there's kind of a few things that go into that. Right. On the one hand, when you talk about uh, how seriously people take their job, there's some really crappy jobs out there, like being a cowboy. Right. But the people who do that work, like that's their identity. Right. Uh, in my experience, the people that work in warehouses, it tends to be much more. This is just a job. Right. There's so they don't have that identity as well. The, the pay tends to be on the low scale. Um, the facilities tend to be clustered in groups. So if I'm working over here and I don't like it, I can kind of just go down the street. Uh, so these are some of the factors that make the work environment challenging in warehousing. So tell me a little bit about that and what your thoughts are on that. Okay. Um, you know, for better or worse, just about everything you said is from what I've found to be spot on. Uh, now I work in the cold storage business. So cold storage pay does tend to be a little bit higher for uh, your pickers, stockers, forklift operating personnel. Um, and yes, the uh, turnover is extremely high. Uh, for the industry, our average is around 42% annually. Um, and that's always the biggest challenge, you know, is especially when you know, you're working cold storage and someone says, I can make maybe 50 cents an hour less, but at least I can work in a warmer environment and they can just go right across the street. And then down here in the Texas market, uh, you know, they're building warehouses faster than you can think. So yeah, if they don't like it, they literally will just quit the job, walk across the street and get hired at the next one. So for us, the, you know, in order to keep people in the door, keep them hungry, so to speak, is that's, that is our biggest challenge within, within, uh, within not just where I'm at, but as a, as an industry in a whole. I love the comment, keeping them hungry. So give me your theoretical approach to doing that. So you're in charge, you're in a new warehouse today, turnover is half the facility every year. How do you make that place a winning place? What I like to do is the first thing I go do is uh, one, you get to know everybody. I mean, it's a lot, It you know, I've had that happen at several facilities where people 
on other shifts are like, whoa, what are you, what are you doing here? You know, the ops manager, the general manager, they're out the door by three o'clock every day. What are you doing working an off shift? But then um, a lot of people really do try to take as much pride as they can in their job, especially when you're handling, I've noticed more so uh, when you're handling food, there's a good chance that what you're loading, loading on that truck is going to either end up at your table or at your kid's school. So a lot of people try to take a lot of pride in that job. And so one of the things that uh, I've found that always works is not just doing, not just hitting the pavement, talking to the uh, associates, but actually working there with them. And also when it comes time to do things like an SOP review, don't bring in the supervisors to do an SOP review, bring in the people that are doing the job every day. Um, they're, since they're doing it every day, they're going to know all the shortcuts. They're going to know the easiest way to get the job done. So it's a matter of, hey, you know, how do you do this job? How are you able to sustain the numbers? Because we are, uh, we do monitor, we do uh, uh, have pick standards, production standards for all the jobs that we have. It's basically, how are you able to hit these numbers and sustain them? And then we, it's literally, we will work with them to set up new SOPs and also, you know, make sure they're not doing anything unsafe. And as long as all that's marked, you let them take ownership of annual SOP reviews and everything, because they're the ones who wrote them for you. And that also gets a lot more buy-in from your training staff. If they're the ones who are developing the training program and they're not just basically checking off boxes on a checklist. Okay. Yes. I trained them on this. I trained them on this. No, they're the ones who know, hey, when I was here my first day, these were the these were the things I wanted to know and let the trainers handle all of that. So let's dial it back a bit and talk about what a winning culture actually is. Maybe we can just have two buckets. You know, one is maybe a not winning culture, and then the other one would be a winning culture. So if we start on the not winning, what are some characteristics of that kind of work environment that concern you when you come into a new operation? One of the first things I do when I get into a new operation is I drive through the parking lot. If I see a lot of new vehicles, new cars, trucks, everything else, that usually tells me this place is, is living on overtime and the associates are writing their paychecks, um, which also then tells me uh, efficiency is probably a major problem. And I will admit, I tend to see that more at union sites than non-union sites. But whenever we get in, as soon as you walk in the building, a lot of times you just, it's almost like you feel it. You, it's, uh, you know, uh, the way people, instead of walking around, like if they're walking from their, their equipment to the break room or from the break room to the locker room, they almost walk like they're being led to the gallows, um, <laughs> where, you know, where you know, it's the extreme opposite. If you've got a facility that's committed to what they're doing, you move with a purpose, you know, but I mean, that's, that's one of the first things I've seen is morale is an issue. Overtime is out of control. Turnover is high. And it's because morale's an issue. Overtime's out of control. And the people probably in most cases feel like they're not being listened to, even if it's, you know, nobody or nobody's taking the time they'll, they may have it like a suggestion box or something like that, but nobody's looking at them. Or if they are, they're not closing the loop, getting back to the associates saying, hey, this is a shitty idea 
or, hey, now this is a good idea, but we can't implement it yet. And here's why. A lot of people that I've seen with like suggestion programs, even if you tell them I can't implement your suggestion, as long as you can give them a good reason why, that's it. That'll help, too. But that, those yeah. are some of the things that jump right out to me when I walk into a, into a facility. Yeah, I like that. And I like that you pointed out that having a tool doesn't mean that you're executing, right? Right. Um, employee suggestion board or box, uh, I think, is one of the uh, most unfortunate tools to get wrong because of what it says to the employee. So there are some things that I've seen done as checking off the box. And an example would be like filling out a production board where the supervisor or the team lead, you know, they shuffle over with their papers, they fill out some numbers, maybe they, maybe they get it wrong. They don't care, they walk off to do their thing because they're supposed to fill the board out. Okay, that's not good, but it's not nearly as bad as treating the employee suggestion board that way. Because now you're telling the employees, you know what, your ideas are completely meaningless. We're only doing this because corporate said we had to, or the boss said we had to, right? Something like that. Right. Yep. And, you know, another thing I, that I'll do is, you know, observe, like, do they have a pre-shift meeting? A lot of times they're not. Or are they having one, but, you know, the supervisor or the lead or whomever is holding that meeting, are they basically, you know, dead, non-emotional? You know, I'm not saying you have to have a pre-shift meeting where everybody's walking out the door hitting play like a champion, you know, um, signs as they're going out. But, you know, you should be able to, once you get there in a few short minutes, let people know, hey, this is the workload for today. Here's what we're staring down the barrel of overtime for the day. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe for the weekend. Either way. Let people know that kind of stuff as early as possible. So that way, hey, if I've got daycare or a ride, I've got to hook up. But, you know, it's nice if people could walk into the beginning of their shift, knowing their expectations. So that way, people are going to work to the pace of the workload. But if they also dangle that carrot of, hey, you know, we get out of, we get everything done in under eight hours, we're, leave, we're leaving. That's always a great carrot to dangle as long as you follow through it's it's one thing to say hey we'll leave if we can get every leave early if we can get everything done but then you pull that away and next thing you know everybody you're done six and a half hours and all of a sudden it's like well let's stay in pick pre-pick ahead of time now you've just defeated that and that's never going to work again yeah yep that's a great observation uh we see that with a lot of continuous improvement and lean ideas. For example, if you use a Kaizen event to improve a work cell and you don't need two guys anymore, if you fire them or lay them off because of that, they will never participate in another Kaizen event again, right? Yep. Um, you just broke that trust until everybody in the building is dead or has moved on, right? Uh, and yep. even then the stories will stay behind after you leave. Yeah, I've definitely worked in a place, John, where five years after the last negative or terrible impact had come and gone, um, they had brought in some new folks and the general leadership was really trying their best from the tools that they had to be engaged and meet people where they were and ask questions. But there was such a foul taste of they don't listen to us that this negative thing happened five years ago. And the tenured employees were 
it was a really tough line on, is this a lost cause? Like, is it even a boat I can move or do I just need to get mm-hmm. on a different ship? Yep. Yeah. If I yeah, learned, real consequences. Uh, I learned that lesson as well, pretty young in my career where, uh, I was in manufacturing at the time and our company was uh, gearing up for uh, our Shingo prize uh, evaluation. And one of the big things that we, uh, that was actually part of all of our training for people, whenever they were getting ready to go through their six Sigma certifications and everything was um, especially in the Northeast, because it's such a heavy bargaining unit area is, Hey, if, if part of, if the result of this Kaizen, or this project is going to be uh, less staffing is required for this particular job, you better be ready to answer what's going to happen to those people right then and there, you know, because you're going to get asked, hey, you know, it looks like you're going to need two less people to get this job done. What's going to happen to those two people? You know, you better be ready to answer that or else if you want any sort of buy in, it's gone if you can't answer those questions because they'll just they'll pay the lip service to the project, but they're going to do everything they can. They'll 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 follow the process while you're watching. As soon as it's done, all of a sudden you'll see two more people are still working there because you you didn't satisfy uh, the, their answers that they were looking for. Yeah. So those are some characteristics of a uh, not winning culture, right? I hate to say losing culture. That's way too negative, but not winning, right? Okay. Um, so how about some characteristics of a winning culture? What tells you um, that a, a winning work, what tells you that a work environment is winning? It's going to sound weird, but if I don't need supervisors. Okay. And tell I don't me more need, about that. You're always going to need them. But whereas if your supervisors that you have, are no longer more of what, you know, that old world, crack the whip, keep people moving. If your supervisors now are more a coach or even sometimes, although they they may hate the analogy, a cheerleader, um, that's when you know you're doing something right. Um, A well-trained, well-disciplined, well-maintained workforce, they're going to know what they need to come in, what they're doing every day because it's being communicated to them clearly every day. You know, they've got the confidence in their supervision that if they find, say, a maintenance issue or some sort of equipment issue, that it's going to get addressed timely, that you're going to be able to go to them and say, hey, you know, Bob here, I know he's only been here for like six months, but, you know, prior to coming to here, this guy used, he was a slip machine at his other places and he could operate a push-pull attachment like a champ. Let's, let's start working with him, you know, where basically even sometimes maybe seniority may not even matter. They're going to realize, Hey, you're better at this than I am. I may have been here 15 years. You've been here four, but you can work circles around me on these particular tasks and you don't have that territorial issues. Um, and honestly, like I said, people walk around with a purpose and they actually see whether or not that, uh, whether or not they want to move up, move on, they know that there's uh, that that ability is there if they choose to take it, but also what would be required of them. Hey, if I want to 
move up to a lead position or if I want to move up to a supervisor position, yeah, I need to have a little bit more time here or I need to somehow find out if I can somehow get into inventory control, get the, get a little more IC and systems knowledge, that kind of thing. So um, it, it, the big difference between both is information and how you choose to use it. Yeah, I've seen a lot and talked with John about this hypothetical scenario we throw out, which is what if you ran an operation, doesn't matter your industry, you ran an operation and you put no leaders and no rules in there, what would happen? And most humans generally, they'll find themselves sliding into a role. Any group of humans will naturally take different roles within whatever the process is to get it done. And then they'll also kind of tribally self-impose rules and hold people like some real peer accountability to those rules. We're like, no, you can't do that. That ruins my part of the step. I know you shouldn't do that. Or this makes this product wrong. And as supervisors, we're kind of working backwards to just make all these things that would occur in nature normally. We'd already have hunters. We'd already have gatherers. We'd already have people doing all the steps that get us forward. And we're sort of working backwards to create that. So I really like what you said about the supervisors. If they become coaches and eventually cheerleaders, and their job is to manage processes and proselytize the emotionally driven nature of humans to have real clarity around what they're doing in the warehouse. That's so much more powerful than cracking a whip and going, all right, we got a thousand cases today. Yep. And it's yeah. really, and it's really good if you're at a facility where you watch that, where you're able to see and transform, you know, a non-winning facility to a winning and you see that transformation, you see the lights come on in their eyes. And that's a big difference whenever you see supervisors and, and you know, high tenured employees that are just going through the motions. And then all of a sudden, it may take some time, but that's fine. But all of a sudden, you start to see the life start to come back. That's a And that that's its own reward. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think Jake and I for sure you know, we're motivated by seeing that, right? Seeing people win, seeing the, the lights go off, uh, having that light bulb moment uh, for employees. And there's actually a shortcut that I've used when it comes to how the supervisors sort of behave and what the employee expectations are. And that is you can just immediately say, okay, guys, you are professionals. And here's your job and you're going to do it. So when we come in on Monday, you're going to tell me what your job is and do it. And typically I'll get the response like, I don't, I don't know that. Well, why not? But I, I don't know. I wasn't trained. Okay. We just uncovered a, a problem. We can fix it. Yep. Other times I'll hear hallelujah. It's about fucking time. Do you know how many times I come into the building and I know what we have to do to win today and our dumbass team lead is over here worried about this thing over here. And, you know, so you can, you kind of get a um, both sometimes at the same time when you take that yeah. approach. But if you're just do right now, obviously I set the table by talking to all the leaders first, talking to all the supervisors first, right? These aren't kids, not my toddlers. I'm not going to, tell them what to do every day. They need to be professionals. They should tell me. They should be able to tell us what they have to get done, right? And, and so I make sure I have buy-in and everybody's aligned in the leadership team first. But when it rolls out to the floor, it's just a simple, you own it. You're a professional. You're a grown man. We're not here to, to coddle you, babysit you, or 
disrespect you. You know right. you're capable of this, right? And sometimes, you know, you'll get a little, um, I don't know, you'll get folks that aren't happy with it because it gives them responsibility and they're used to being able to blame a leader. Well, I just didn't understand what you said or, or fill in the blank, right? Uh, right? But even they typically come on board really fast just because of the level of respect there. And now they can take pride in their work, right? They're not somebody that's just trading time for money and I punch the clock and, you know, you have to drag me by the nose everywhere. Um, it just changes the dynamic and changes the culture. It does. It does. And I mean, one of the things that I like to do with uh, my leadership team when I get in, you know, after a couple of days of just observation, you know, I'm not going to, you know, the only time you're going to see me step in during my first couple of days is, okay, you're doing something unsafe. Aside from that, I want to see just how you're, how you're handling, you know, but then, you know, when I get everybody together, it's also just letting them know, Hey, uh, when it all comes down to it, uh, as a, as an associate, you have two jobs to work as safely and as efficiently as possible in order to maximize shareholder wealth and to keep people out of your backyard, you know, and doesn't matter who you are, where you are in a company. Uh, that's really the only two jobs you have. Um, now, the only thing is sometimes for this person who's below, their second, their second job may be don't give people a reason to come into your backyard. But it's really helping people understand that uh, the problems and situations that we have uh, for the facility aren't necessarily uh inside the four walls it's outside the four walls that we got to worry about yeah jason i love what you said there and i i just couldn't agree more but my my general path forward is always the same and that's not change anything talk to folks connect make some relationships and come to terms with exactly where you are right unless it's unsafe right. then of course right you have to immediately jump in but come to terms with exactly where you are whatever that is then you can see how to move that needle forward. And generally the people there know how to move the needle forward better than any of us ever would. We're not the idea men when we come in. No, we just facilitate empowering the people to come and do that themselves. Now, let me ask, yeah. what are you drinking this afternoon? Um, well, sir, uh, happened to, from watching, your, watching some of your uh, episodes before, I am a bourbon drinker, so. Uh, I'm having some Buffalo Trace, uh, good old-fashioned Kentucky windage right there. All right, John likes the I, Kentucky windage. I don't, I don't oh. make your money, so I can't afford the Pappy, Pappy Van Winkle, you know. But this <laughs> yeah, is as close as I can get. Uh, Buffalo Trace is the oldest distillery in North America. I think they're older yeah. than uh, the United States. I've got yeah. Don Julio, 1942, straight. Nothing special. Being a have, being a Pennsylvania uh, guy, I would say that the Yingling Brewery is the oldest continuously operating brewery in the United States, too. Just started being available in Texas, by the way. Oh, right on. Yeah, I yeah, can get that up here in uh, Hanover, but uh, Jake's been dry for a while in the Yingling, uh, Yingling thing. Yeah, they just put signs up around downtown Dallas. It's officially here. Come get it. And I'm actually a, a LinkedIn connection with the VP that's like in charge of the building. I'm, Let me in that building. Let me improve something for you now. <laughs> well, Table and beer. 
swing yeah. up to swing up to Pottsville, Pennsylvania, and they'll let you tour the brewery. So I mean, you even get free samples when you're done. Oh, right oh, that's, a, that, that's a really good spot. Now, one of the other reasons I really wanted to talk to you today is because Jason and I share a love of data. This guy is a data nerd. He's probably the second most nerdy human I met right next to John here, who just likes to <laughs> numbers. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your approach to gathering, like selecting and applying data that makes a meaningful difference? All right. Well, uh, as you've mentioned, yes, I uh, even in my personal life, I kind of do run things a lot by spreadsheet or mini tab, which is sad. And, and yes, I am. I, and yes, I'm married. I'm married to a woman. I've seen her naked. But still, um, uh, no. Miracles thing, do happen. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but, uh, you know. One of the big things that I do see is a lot of companies, for some reason, are afraid to use a staffing tool or if they have one, they're afraid to prove it, you know, to uh, prove it out. A lot of places will just, you know, they want to go with like a one size fits all. But the thing is, you know, a lot of companies, mine included, where I currently am employed and others, you know, we pay a lot of money in licensing fees for things such as WMS systems you know, Excel, you know, PowerPoint, all of these kind of systems we're paying a lot of money for. Why aren't we using them more? So uh, now I know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, companies are starting to look at things such as like Legion, which is a great cloud based labor planner. But uh, cost wise, Excel's pretty cheap. And if you have a decent WMS system, it's pretty easy to build one. And it's also you know, you've got to look at what it what is it that is the key drivers for your for your warehouse or your company? Is it a pounds? How do you measure outbound productivity? Is it pounds? Is it cases? Is it pallets? Really could depend. And honestly, from site to site, it could have it could change differently. So it's just setting all that up, you know, uh, to to pull an old Six Sigma phrase. What's your tack time? You know, what have you got to do to get everything out the door within the set amount of time that you've got that you're operating and basing your labor accordingly to that? So that's, you know, so that's the things that I try to do is what is what is the what are the KPIs that this facility has? And if not, I know the ones that I'm going to measure them by so that if, if they don't have them, I'm going to establish the ones that I use. And that's what how I build uh, things such as a staffing tool. Um, your truck or rail inbound and outbound matrix uh, for uh, appointments per hour, those kind of things. So that way, you know, I see in a lot of warehouses, they, they like to just throw labor, you know, throw money at it, throw it, throw labor at it. Well, a lot of times you just end up bringing people in early or keeping people over and all they end up doing is pushing a broom and getting pissed off because they have to keep giving time for free almost. Um, most people don't mind every so often if they get mandated and they actually get to work. Most people will always get pissed if they're mandated to come in early, come in on a weekend, stay over, and all they really do is push a broom. So it's, it's finding those things. Yeah, John is another one that he loves the phrase daily progress and meaningful work. And that's a deep 
thing for us humans is work has to be meaningful. Like we can, we're not, even if we're coming in and our job is super simple, it has to be meaningful. We have to find a way to make that meaningful for that individual. Yep. And and one of the things that I like to do is uh, every month after, you know, we do the month end close, you know, may not necessarily be able to share financial data. I get that being a publicly traded company, you may not, you know, you have certain rules you may have to follow. However, there's nothing wrong with telling people, hey, you know, as a picker, you picked this many cases this month. That was this many pounds. Do you realize you picked 10% of all the cases this company shipped this month? And now all of a sudden you can just see that, like, they may not say anything and that's fine, but they do walk a little different after you tell them that. Or whenever you tell someone, hey, you do realize we received more rail cars this month and than we have in the last five years. And it was because of the, the efforts that you and those, those rail teams were making. Great job. Want you to know that. You know, a lot of times that will go further than handing out gift cards, handing out coffee mugs is just that a personal acknowledgement. Some may not necessarily want it in a public forum, but if you walk up to and be like, I know what you did and thank you for doing it. It's still, you know, and that's the biggest thing that a lot of people in senior leadership positions don't understand is every so often you have to go to your associates and say, I'm going to need a little bit more out of you this week. Depending on how you've treated them leading up to that, they may say, okay, boss. And then as soon as you walk out, they're like, whatever, or they actually will do what they can to help because they know you appreciate their efforts. So, winning work environment, right? And creating a winning work environment. We contrasted needing constant supervision or waiting to be told what to do versus taking ownership and uh, really leading your particular area of uh, expertise, uh, trained, disciplined workforce versus, you know, a workforce that's not um, the gallows walk right around the building right. versus purposeful walk, which ties into that purpose. We took, ter- we talked about um, territorialism, you know, versus collaboration and working together. And we kind of had the capstone was kind of information and how you use it, right? Is information flowing both ways? Is it good information? Right. You know, all of this stuff. So creating a winning work environment, I'm going to make the assumption for all of our listeners out there that when we're talking about creating a winning work environment, we're talking about a brownfield. In other words, you came into an operation that already exists and you have to create a winning work environment. It, it doesn't exist yet, you know, currently, as opposed to starting from scratch, which can be a lot easier, right? So talk us through some changes that you've made you know, in real life to create a winning work environment and how that went for you, what you learned from it, all of that good stuff. All right. Probably, you know, it's been years, but the one that I, one of the ones I'm still most proud of is a facility I, that I had worked with. I just started there and I'm hearing from, I was walked in the door as an operations manager and all my supervisors were like, our rail teams, you know, we, you know, we have so much demurrage. We have so many issues with the railroad. We have all kinds of things. And I'm like, okay, uh, so what's been done about it? You know, and, and you get crickets. 
And so it's like, okay, not a problem. So then I started doing a little digging, you know, find out, okay, this is, this is a site that was paying 20 to $40,000 a month in demurrage costs. Uh, customers that ship to that facility via rail um, were just about at the end of their rope um, because of, you know, cars sitting in the yard and cuts happening to orders when they should have had this product in stock, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so it's like, okay, not a problem. And then, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, this was also a bargaining unit facility, heavy, heavy old school union. Walked in, walked back, started talking to the rail associates. After about an hour of complaints, you started to get, once, once they got that off their chest, then they were able to start giving me good, useful information. Hey, why is it that, you know, we have all these, for example, dock plates. We have cracked dock plates. Why can't we get them fixed? I could, you know, we could put more teams back here for that, you know, or why is it that whenever one of our machines goes down, a push-pull attachment or something like that, it's always the last thing to get fixed? Why is, you know, so you start getting a lot of information. So not, a, I was like, guys, let me get back to you. Started walking around, talking to people. Went down, talked to our maintenance department. Okay, guys, you know, the, you know, it's not a high reach. It's not a pallet jack. These are some pretty unique pieces of equipment that we use back on these rail docks. Why is it that if one of them goes down, they've got to wait? And, now, and their honest answer was, well, no one's told us they're a priority. Okay, well, I'm the ops manager, and I'm telling you now, if one of these comes through your door, it's a priority. That, so that was an easy one, you know, getting dock plates uh, repaired, not a problem. So, it, and it took some time, but it was like, okay, I fixed this for you. Now what? I fixed this. Now what? And then it finally got to the point where they were like, you know, I got nothing. So then I was like, okay, no, I got something for you. Why is it that you're unloading product this way? You know, and of course you get the standard answer. It's the way I've always done it. Okay. And then, then that's where it's like, okay, look. You, you build up a little bit of credibility with your people by getting things done for them. So that way, if you come to them with an idea, it's not like, oh, yeah, whatever, dude. You know, they'll actually, okay, you know, he did this for us. At least we could do is give him an honest effort. Um, and, you know, sat there, spent probably a good week and a half on, you know, all three shifts, just observing how each team did it, you know. Uh, and it was okay getting everybody. So finally, after about a month, it was like data collection's done. It's time to implement some things. So first thing, got in touch with all of our customers that uh, shipped to us on rail. Explained to them what was going on. They were like, Jace, you know, we're at our wits end. I'll give you a month. Show me what you can do. So I got the folks together on the rail teams, laid out a different unload plan you know it's like guys you're just basically pulling product off of a rail car and hoping it lands somewhere type of thing you know you know how about we set up a uh, basically a work cell and unload in this fashion that way you know you're never having to run back and forth you're losing a lot of time all this kind of stuff and laid it out laid it out with all three shifts there was a lot of uh a lot of coffee that was taken in during that amount of time, but also laid it out with all three shifts saying, Hey, look, this is how we need to unload. And this is why, 
because eventually they realized the best way to ensure that you're successful is to ensure the people that come after you are going to be as well. Got an insane amount of buy-in, honestly. It was, it was, it was great to see. And honestly, within six weeks, so with let's say two months, our uh, demerge payments went from $40,000 a month to zero. Uh, we had zero uh, demerge bills for the two years that I spent at that site. Uh, and honestly, turnover um, with the rail teams stopped. And honestly, it was nice because whenever we had uh, vacancies open up on the rail teams, everybody knew how to train. And even we had a new supervisor came, that came in. That rail team trained him on how, to, how they run their dock. And it was nice. So that way, everybody caught on. And it was a great thing. And actually, you know, it actually won us more business from current customers, which was nice because our BD department didn't have to go out and pound the pavement. They just came to us and say, hey, you're knocking it out of the park. How about I give you more volume until you guys hang yourself? And they just kept filling the building. So, I mean, it was a great that that's been one of my biggest successes that I've loved so far. I love that is the a part great about- story. I love the part about the personal credibility where it's kind of like you're playing an infinite poker game with folks and none of them are ever going to put in more chips than they can get out. So you just start by giving all the ones you could possibly give. Let me solve this. Let me solve this literally until they have nothing and then go, okay, my turn. <laughs> and uh, I yeah. like that's a solid way for engagement. Yeah. And it, and yeah. it really works, right? The uh, I forget the name of the, psychology theory it actually has a name but the um, idea of giving a gift you know they did this psychology study where people came into a business and they measured how many people bought right that's your your take rate and then they did the exact same thing but everybody that came through the door they gave with kids they gave the kid a free balloon and among the people that they gave them the free balloon gave their kid a free balloon they had a three times as high take rate as other customers, right? And they were yeah. testing this uh, reciprocation theory. I think that's what it's called or whatever. And it's just how we're hardwired, you know? It's like, Jake does something nice for me. Well, you know, I'm kind of obligated to do something for Jake. You know, that's fair, fair is fair, right? And being the first mover um, is very powerful for leaders. And what I love about that story is that it's a, a real lean story, Jason, because you didn't just improve things, you were able to add business. And that's the uh, tail end of lean that is missing in a lot of instances. If you don't get to the point where the improvements you made increase business, then you didn't quite finish it, right? So thanks for sharing that. Not a problem. Yep. They're always, in order to get anything like that, there's always got to be a happily ever after. There's got to be not just, hey, well, it's this. No, there's got to be something. There's got to be something other than, okay, well, I can do this faster. Well, so what? Right. But if you do it fast enough, there's a good chance, especially like for this particular customer, they were taking business from a competitor and giving it to us, which was even better. You know, it was truly a conquest, you know, uh, gain for us since it was new business from a competitor. I think that the happily ever after is important for the employee narrative and morale as well. Right. So I've worked with teams where, you know, we improve stuff, 
and through some things that we didn't have a lot of control over, uh, the outcomes weren't great. And, you know, in one case, it was we had a customer who ended their contract and they had a, a corporate mandate to bring it all back in-house. And so we lost like this big, big customer. Um, and so it looked like all of our efforts, you know, had had failed. Like we were worse off than we were before. Um, contrast that with doing any kind of improvement project and being able to tell the employees it matters because we sold more business. We got this, we kicked our competitors, butt. whatever it is that creates this uh, narrative for the employees, you know, where they can really take pride in their work and Hey, we made a difference. Like we did that. You know, we, we always thought it was some magician up in corporate that, you know, had a suit and tie and made a phone call and bam, millions of dollars. But that's not how it happens at all. Like we actually did that, right? Yep. So and, that, and every, that, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. No, and every so often, in my opinion, when you do something like that, right, is when you get the ultimate compliment, which is when your competition comes to you and is like, okay, how the hell did you pull this off? And can we benchmark you to see what you did? You know, and that was something that we had, uh, when I was in manufacturing that we had uh, at when I did pet food, even doing cold storage, there's certain things where if your site is just doing it that well and you are the example, when you've got your biggest competitors reaching out to you and saying, you know, what is it that you're doing? How are you kicking my ass, basically, and being able to show them, hey, guys, it's it's not it's, it, you know. I don't work for Lockheed. It's not rocket science. I pick things up. I set things down. That's that's really all logistics is. It's what happens in between that, that that separates the winners from the losers. But when you've got your competition asking you, how do you, how are you doing this? You know, to me, that's the ultimate compliment where it's like, OK, you if your competition is saying, hey, go here because this is the people that are feeding us our lunch that you can't get anything better than that. But then the smart thing to do is realize you get better by sharing knowledge. Don't say I go pound sand. I'll never tell you help them out because I, I, I don't know. It's just, you can't leave somebody with their hat in hand. If somebody's coming to you for help, you're going to help them. And the fact is if your company says, yeah, help these people out. I think that's when, win across the board, especially with your customers. Yeah, I've got a very funny story that hits on that so specifically. So uh, you're Jake, you're in charge of a, of a 3PL uh, furniture, e-tail, retail uh, divisions, and there's a 4PL halfway across the country. You get sent to manage another warehouse because their performance is bad, right? You're going to go out and see why they lose an inventory. Why can they run so much overtime? Why is their productivity so low? And I fly out there like, all right, I'm going to teach big old ego-driven Jake. It's going to walk through these doors and tell everybody how to do it better. And I got there and there was a huge cultural difference in people's approach to work and how they viewed productivity and whether they benchmark productivity at all, et cetera, et cetera. But their core process was actually better than mine. <laughs> it was more efficient and the right thing to take back and change when I got back home. And I was the guy they sent to come fix it. 
So they had a totally different set of problems, which I helped them through with uh, some cultural gaps and getting people bought into wanting to work that helped facilitate. But then I came back and changed my whole operation to be the worst operations way because it was better. It legitimately was better. And you can't get any of that if you're not enlarging that pie. If you're not sharing, collaborating, business needs to be less and less about direct competition and more and more about collaboration. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think it's a little cutting edge, you know, a little avant-garde. Um, although some companies have been doing this for decades, um, particularly automotive and also aerospace. Uh, we all know that BMW builds the new Toyota Supra. Um, Subaru builds the new Toyota BRZ sports car. Well, I think the Toyota is called the GR86, but it's the same as the Subaru, right? I mean, what kind of world do we live in where car manufacturers are building models for other companies? What? Yep. Yeah, they're able to collaborate. Hey, you're good at this. I'm not. Can you make this for me? And Toyota's not good at making fun to drive cars. So their two sports cars are made by other companies, you know? You're like, hey, this is a top-end sports car, BMW. You know, this is the bottom-end sports car. Hey, Subaru, you know. Um, and in the same way with aerospace, you know, for, for decades, like you can't launch the space shuttle if United Technologies and Westinghouse are fighting with each other, right? Um, so, and that comes down to the winning and not winning and that whole territorialism thing, right? Yep. I mean, it's a negative uh, emotional state to be in. And very difficult to get positive outcomes because it's an inherently negative view. Like I'm playing defense instead of offense all of a sudden, right? Yeah, and you can't be an efficiency goblin. So it's a term I coined. So all of us that are here are efficiency fanatics where we love to just calculate numbers and go, this will make us better, let's do it. This will make us better, let's do it. But there's a point where like you're giving up humanity for that exchange. Like if your improvement is, all right, employees, just piss your pants and keep working. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're subhuman at this point. We need, to make, Jack Bezos. Uh, <laughs> we need to make an efficient improvement that enlarges that pie for everybody, not just for, you know, just improvement for the sake of improvement. I call those guys efficiency goblins. And I'm specifically looking at people who have their toothbrush in the shower. If your toothbrush is in the shower, you're evil and subhuman. Get out of the shower and then brush your teeth. <laughs> what about shaving in the shower? Do you shave in the shower? Well, um, this is my first round of like an actual shave. So I'll mm -hmm. let you know whenever <laughs> I actually have to do it. Yeah, I do a lot of the time because like the steam and stuff like loosens up the hair follicles and it's just easier to shave. So I have like this little mirror in there. It's not to be more efficient. It's just like to, to get my whiskers not to pull out you know to decrease the amount of blood you donate yeah <laughs> yeah and then you know i hate walking around with like these bumps all over my face and neck you know all day and everyone's like are you okay are you having a reaction to something i'm like yeah i'm having a reaction to my fucking razor at five o'clock this morning you know um so yeah yeah, they, yeah yeah they've given they've given you know nobel prizes away but I've yet to see anybody recognize the guy who invented the timer on a coffee pot. And, <laughs> you know, and I would love to, I would give whoever it was, I'd give them a nice firm handshake and look them dead in the eye while doing it. If they could actually make a good fog proof mirror, you know, yeah, for a what, shower. Is, what is up with that? 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that's the main reason, you know, it's like I've gone through God knows how many mirrors shaving in the shower, you know, because as you can tell, I kind of take it down the whole way. It, it, it hides up everything else that's going on. But, sure, yeah. you know, it'd be great to have a mirror that actually doesn't fog whether, you know, oh, we'll just put soap on it or shaving cream. No, I don't want the damn thing to fog. Someone yeah. does that. They're going to be they're going to they're going to retire early. Definitely. No, and that sounds like a good challenge for us. I know. I'm already thinking, planning out my retirement. So efficiency goblins. Yeah, it's a great point where um, in my uh, execution, like when I'm running an operation, I have a guardrail uh, for myself, which is if at any point the improvements we're making or think we're making require the employee to move at a faster pace, I'm going to go a different direction. And we may come back to that later, right? So if you look at the, the pace at which the employees are moving, and that includes I've started an operation where the employees moved too slowly. I'm sorry, but uh, you're just moving too slowly. You know, you have to move more quickly. I still didn't do that. Let's remove the waste first and see how much productivity gains while you're still moving at that same pace. Because that doesn't require a new level of physical capability and health right? Eventually, you're going to have to, to get there. But that's one of the ways that I avoid the efficiency goblin syndrome and also uh, improve the working environment. Hey, I'm not asking you to, to physically work faster. That's not how we're going to get better, right? And then ironically, after we improve production by 70%, just by removing the waste, all of a sudden, the employees are energized and they're coming in and they're moving faster, right? And so you end up getting that uh, anyway. All right, that's probably a good place to stop. So Jason, thank you so much for joining us on a quality podcast. Hard to believe that we wrapped up this hour so quickly. Love to have you back and talk a little bit more about this. Thank you for sharing uh, your stories and your experience on creating a winning work environment. How can folks get in touch with you? Uh, Most folks, if they just look up, Jason Long on LinkedIn that I'm not on any of the other social medias, but look up Jason Long. They'll see my ugly face and the, in the profile picture. Uh, I basically say yes to everybody, you know, kind of a, kind of a hoe, but uh, you know, (laughs) you know, so yeah, let's, let's connect. Let's talk. You know, Hey, I, I will freely admit, I do not know everything. So let's, you know, let's see what we can learn from each other and, yeah, would love to come back any other time. Great. I will put your link down below for people to link to. Um, if you're available, 7 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays for our Work It Out Wednesday on Clubhouse, we'd love to have you um, contribute to that. So, Jason Long, thank you so much for joining us. For everybody out there in YouTube land, goodbye. Goodbye.